I want to thank the Dalrada congregation for having an AP out this week. Uh, especially, we want to thank you for all the financial assistance you've given AP over the years. Uh, we've been able to get a lot of things done due to the generosity of this congregation. I have one complaint about this whole VBS thing. And that is that somehow I got lined up right after my dad. And I usually like to be separated by several days or weeks so that you forget what a great orator he is compared to me. But uh, he's a great one to, to have uh, at AP directing things and being the captain of the ship there. <clears throat> According to the National Academy of Sciences, um, in their book called Teaching About Evolution and the Nature of Science. So this is the nature of science according to the National Academy of Sciences. They said one goal of science is to understand nature. The statements of science must invoke only natural things and processes. The statements of science are those that emerge from the application of human intelligence to data obtained from observation and experiment. Progress in science consists of the development of better explanations for the causes of natural phenomena. So with this simple definition in place, notice what has been eliminated from the table of scientific discussion and expelled from the science classroom. God, anything that is unnatural, that is supernatural, that's no longer on the table according to the National Academy of Sciences. God's not natural. He is supernatural. He cannot be directly observed or experimented on, so he is unscientific. Evolution, on the other hand, is supposedly the scientific choice. It's the one that's in keeping with the evidence. It doesn't require, as they say, a, a leap of faith, a, a blind faith. It can be uh, backed by direct observation, they say. But guess what? When the evidence is actually weighed, it's clear that, the, that evolution is actually the unscientific choice. It's the option that requires a blind faith and, and as opposed to creation. If anything can be said to be scientific, it is the laws of science. The laws of science stand in clear contradiction with the atheistic explanation for how everything got here. We're going to look briefly uh, tonight at six of the laws of science to see what they have to say about the matter of origins, specifically this idea of atheistic evolution, cosmic evolution, uh, what some evolutionists are using to describe the way in which everything got here without the supernatural, only using natural means. We won't be able to go as much into depth as I'd like, but we'll just do a, a brief survey of this topic. According to the McGraw-Hill uh, McGraw Dictionary of Scientific and Technical Terms, a scientific law is a regularity which applies to all members of a broad class of phenomena. Not just some, all members. There are no exceptions to a law of science by definition. That's why Stephen Hawking said regarding the laws of nature, and you probably know who Stephen Hawking is, very famous, well-known atheist. He said, what's really important is that these physical laws, as well as being unchangeable, are universal. They apply not just to the flight of the ball, but to the motion of a planet and everything else in the universe. Unlike laws made by humans, the laws of nature cannot ever be broken. That's why they're so powerful. The laws of nature are fixed. So these laws of nature are understood to be unbreakable, even by the most famous 
among evolutionary scientists. They, are, um, they, are, they have no known exceptions. Now, what does that matter? Well, the laws of science present some major unresolvable issues for the naturalistic explanation of how we got here, evolutionary theory. These laws, again, cannot ever be broken. They are unchangeable. They are fixed. First of all, the laws of science themselves, just their existence, are unexplainable from an evolutionary perspective because laws cannot write themselves into existence. You ever thought about that? Who actually wrote the laws of science? You can't have a law without a lawmaker. Paul Davies is a well-known atheistic physicist, cosmologist, and astrobiologist of Arizona State University. He said, you need to know where those laws come from. That's where the mystery lies, the laws. Creation requires a creator. Design requires a designer. Laws require a, a lawmaker. They are evidence of design, and they're unexplainable by the atheist. They're unexplainable by evolutionary theory, the naturalistic explanation. One of the things you'll see tonight over and over again is that the creation model doesn't have a problem with the scientific evidence. It never does. Uh, The whole time the naturalists are claiming that creationists are some kind of uneducated hillbillies and yahoos that believe in uh, mystic ancient fables without any scientific backing. In actuality, every time the scientific evidence is examined, it always backs the creationist position. God himself actually instituted the field of science. Way back in Genesis chapter 1 when he created man and he said, hey, I want you to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. That's science. That's what science does. Romans 1.20, he encourages you to study the creation because from that you can learn the existence of God and even certain characteristics of, about who he is, what his characteristics are. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast that which is good. That's essentially the scientific method. So the Bible never has a problem with the scientific evidence as opposed to what many people would have you to believe today. True science and true religion are always perfectly in harmony. False science and true religion or false science and false religion are going to have problems. False science and false religion are going to have problems. But if you have the truth in both science and religion, they always are in harmony. This passage here, Job 38, 33. Remember, God is humbling Job with several of the things that uh, can be seen in nature that prove that God uh, is sovereign over everything. He asked Job, do you know the ordinances, the rules, the laws of the heavens? Can you set their dominion? their rule over the earth. Well, of course, Job probably didn't even know that there was such a thing really as a law of science. They weren't really discovered for thousands of years later. But God said, guess what? I wrote them. That's implied in what he's saying there. Rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is, no, sir, I don't know how this could be done. I didn't even know there were laws of science, much less could I actually uh, have caused them to have dominion over the earth. Let's look at, at two laws of science. Our first two here, the first and second laws of thermodynamics. The atheist argues that the origin of the universe can be explained from a massive explosion of an extremely hot, almost infinitely dense ball of matter billions of years ago. But even if that were true, where did the little ball come from? Very important question that has to be asked. And if you're an atheist, if you're a naturalist, If you're someone who doesn't accept God, then there's really only two options for how the universe could have gotten here. Either it's self-created, that is, it just spontaneously generated, it popped into existence, or it's self-existent, it's eternal, it has always been. Let's look briefly at this first 
option? Could matter have spontaneously generated according to the scientific evidence? Well, let's say there's an invisible box, and it's big enough to fit around the entire universe. Okay, so there's this boundary layer, and it's big enough to to hold the entire universe in it. So it's essentially the blast radius of the Big Bang, if you were to believe that, which we don't. But even if you did believe that, it's the, it goes around the blast radius of the universe. Everything in the universe is inside of this box. If you believe that the universe could spontaneously generate, just pop into existence on its own from nothing, then in a thermodynamic sense, you believe that this box was initially completely empty. Let's zoom inside of the box here. The box is empty. We've zoomed in inside of this box. The spontaneous generation model claims no one put matter in this universe. It put itself here. So according to the spontaneous generation model, you can stand around inside of that box and you can just stare into nothingness. And given enough time, all of a sudden, pop. Something can just appear. And not only could something just pop into existence, but according to this version of the model, a little ball containing all of the mass and energy of the entire universe could just pop into existence. Then, so they say, the Big Bang process started and eventually, given enough time, the universe expands Uh, Life comes into existence, gradually evolves over time, and finally you accidentally show up in the universe. But guess what? There's a problem with that idea. If common sense doesn't tell you that, then science tells you that as well. The first law of thermodynamics can be summarized by this statement by evolutionist Willard Young. Energy can be neither created nor destroyed, but can only be converted from one form to another. This, This is also known as the law of conservation of matter or energy. Now, what does that mean, practically speaking? Have you ever thought about what happened to a log of wood, a piece of wood, when you burned it? Where did it all go? Obviously, that pile of ash alone couldn't account for where it all went. So where did it all go? Did it just disappear from the universe? In other words, was it destroyed? Well, according to this first law of thermodynamics, in a process like wood burning, matter and energy may change into other forms while it's burning, like heat and light and ash. But the amount of energy in the universe that was present before that wood burns is the same as the amount of energy that was present after it burns. So energy hasn't disappeared or been destroyed from the universe by burning that wood, and energy hasn't popped into existence in the process either. Now, in a more technical sense, the first law uh, says that in a closed system, like a box that contains the entire universe, where there's no energy coming into that system or leaving the system, so no one's opening that box and and putting energy in there or taking it out, the amount of energy within the boundaries of that system will remain constant. So as this chart shows, the amount of energy present before a process, a process like wood burning or the universe coming into existence, the amount of energy present before this process has to be the same as the amount of energy present after the process. So if you start with no energy, no matter in this box before the process, And in order to equalize this equation, you're going to end up with no no matter, no energy after the process. So if you start with no energy, no matter in the universe before a Big Bang, then according to all of the evidence from science, you're still not going to have anything after a Big Bang. In other words, nothing pops into existence. Nothing comes from nothing. It's not going to happen. According to the first law of thermodynamics, which remember, it doesn't have any exceptions. There are no known exceptions. So by implication, it would be unscientific. It would go against the evidence from science, the laws of science, to believe that matter could somehow come into being in such a way that the first law of thermodynamics would be violated. 
According to the first law, the only way matter can appear inside of that box is if somebody opens it up and causes it to appear there. Somebody outside the box. That's what we learn from the scientific evidence. What about the second option? Could matter, have, um, could matter be eternal? Could it have always existed? Well, according to this idea, it would claim that the universe has always been inside of this box. Always been there. No one put it here. It didn't pop into existence. Instead, it's been, it always has been. It's either been moving through space forever, expanding, or if you believe in the oscillating universe model, you'd believe the universe operates in a cycle involving collapse, another big bang, and expansion. Collapse, another big bang, expansion, and so forth, repeating forever. Either way, this model says that matter is eternal. It has always been here. And there are people that believe this idea, just like there are people that believe in the other idea. Recall this famous physicist and cosmologist, Paul Davies, writing in New Scientist. He said, the celebrated second law of thermodynamics says, roughly speaking, that in any change, the universe becomes a slightly more disorderly place. The entropy goes up. The information content goes down. This natural tendency towards disintegration and chaos is evident all around us. And he's right. That's essentially what the second law says. Now, what are the implications of that statement? Well, in a technical sense, the second law builds on the first. And it says, all right, you've got a a constant amount of energy in the universe, nothing coming into existence or or disappearing. But throughout processes that are going on, some of that energy is becoming less usable. In other words, it's breaking down. Things are wearing out, and we can't reverse this process. You know, we we can cause localized pockets of entropy, but on a universal scale, everything is... Uh, We can cause localized pockets of of decreased entropy, like when you go into a room and clean it. But on a universal scale, the the universe we know is breaking down, it's wearing out. And this, again, is known as entropy, and the process is irreversible. So according to our chart here, again, you've got a a certain amount of energy before process. And after the process, the, uh, the amount of energy is the same as before, but you've lost some of that usable energy along the way. Now, what that means, practically speaking, is that everything's wearing out. A car doesn't get nicer over time, unfortunately. It it deteriorates, it rusts, it falls apart. A room doesn't get cleaner on its own, right? (laughs) Without someone putting some work into it, into that system from outside. (laughs) That's unfortunate. But the second law prohibits it. A house's paint job isn't going to get nicer over time. It's going to fade. It's going to chip. The house is going to wear out. Eventually, it's going to collapse if it's left to its own devices. Now, returning to our wood-burning example, when wood burns, all of that energy that was present before it burned is still present after it burned, according to the first law. But according to the second law, some of that energy has transformed into less usable forms of energy, like heat. And when that heat dissipates, you're essentially left with a pile of ash which, of course, isn't nearly as usable. And just like with the first law, the second law has never been broken. It has no exceptions. One prominent engineering thermal science textbook says, to date, no experiment has been conducted that contradicts the second law, and this should be taken as sufficient proof of its validity. Now, what does this mean concerning the origins question? What, are, what is the, the implication? Well, it means that the universe could not have always existed, and we still have usable energy. According to the second law of thermodynamics, if the universe is infinitely old, then we shouldn't have any usable energy left. And yet, we know that we have an abundant amount of usable energy in keeping with the creation model, which says that the universe is actually relatively young, somewhere around the order of six to 8,000 years. Now, notice again, the biblical model is in keeping with the laws of thermodynamics. 
For example, the creation model predicts decay and a gradual loss of usable energy. As the second law says, according to the creation model, the universe will not last forever. It will grow old and deteriorate. Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, quoting Psalm 102. You, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. That's essentially a statement of entropy, the idea that the universe is wearing out. It's breaking down. Again, according to the laws of science, specifically the first and second laws of thermodynamics, which have no exceptions, The spontaneous generation of matter could not have happened, and matter cannot be eternal. And since those are the only two options for atheistic evolution, then the evolutionary uh, model is altogether impossible. So by process of elimination, that means there has to be somebody that did it. Creation. There has to be somebody outside the box. And on top of that, the creation model is supported by both the first and second laws. So if we stick with the scientific evidence, rather than blindly accepting what naturalists claim, then the evidence clearly leads to God. Let's look at a third law of science, the law of cause and effect, or the law of causality. Paraphrasing, it basically says if there's an effect, there must logically be a cause, and more uh, specifically, more precisely, it says every material effect must have an adequate antecedent or simultaneous cause. So the cause has to either precede that has to come before the, the effect or be at the same time as the effect, and it has to have a, have, be adequate to be able to produce the effect. Now, this, this law is so obvious that scientists take it for granted. It's assumed. But really, in actuality, scientifically speaking, causality is not some idea that can just be brushed aside without consideration. If you recall the definition of science at the very beginning of our session, science, according to the National Academy of Sciences, involves investigating causes and effects. All of science deals with cause and effect. You do an experiment and you, that's a, you have a cause and you're looking to see what's going to happen, an effect. Cause and effect is intimately tied to science. But if you're an atheist, there, there's going to be a problem with that idea. If a baseball comes flying over the fence in your backyard, you know that something, someone caused it. You know it didn't start flying on its own accord. The flight of the baseball is the effect of some cause. If you're sitting in a room and a wind-up toy comes running across the floor in front of you, you know that someone wound that toy up and sent it running. That is an effect. It needs a cause. You open up the cookie jar and you see a half-eaten cookie, and there are children in the house, or I'm in your house, then, then you know exactly what, what happened. If a chair is not placed in an empty room, the room's going to remain chairless, right? Yeah, it sounds pretty simple. But again, this law of causality is a major problem for the evolutionary model of origins because the naturalistic mindset cannot allow for an ultimate cause for the universe. The pyramids of Giza, one of the seven wonders of the world, the world cannot come to an agreement as to how and why these structures were built. Some people think it was aliens that did it. There's been a movie made you know, centered around this idea. Now, scientists may not know with certainty how or why they were built, but scientists know that they could not have happened on their own. They are an effect which had to have an adequate cause. In this case, they recognize an intelligent designer. Intelligent design was clearly involved. Stonehenge in Great Britain, after studying these interesting rock formations, scientists concluded that these formations were likely designed to allow predictions uh, based on the stars, but a lot of questions are unsolved, including how was this information used and, and how were the rocks transported to this location and set up. 
But regardless of the questions, one thing is clear. Even though they weren't there to actually witness the creation of these formations, scientists recognized the presence of intelligent design. An adequate cause was necessary to build these formations. So what about the universe? We know that in nature, an effect has a cause. The fact that planets exist, they're floating through space, they're spinning, that's an effect. The existence of life, living beings, is an effect. And there must be an adequate cause according to the scientific evidence. Someone had to cause those things to happen. And yet the naturalist, the atheist, has no explanation. And once again, the creation model has has a cause that is in keeping with the law of causality. In the very first verse of the Bible, we're given this ultimate cause of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He was the uncaused cause, while the evolutionary model has no known cause. So we've got to ask the question again, which model is in keeping with the scientific evidence? Hebrews 3, 4, Every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Every house built by someone. In other words, everything has a cause. But the ultimate cause of all things, every material entity in existence, according to the Bible, that's God. Now, a natural question that typically comes from a study of the law of cause and effect is, well, wait a minute here. If everything has a cause, then why doesn't God? What caused God? Well, first of all, we have to remember that the law of causality says that every material effect must have an adequate cause. And that's important to understand because science involves investigating what we see going on in nature. That's it. So we develop, you know, we write down what we think is going on in nature, not supernature. So it's confined. uh, The laws are specifically confined to what we're able to observe in nature. God, of course, is not a material entity. According to John 4.24, he's spirit. The laws of science only apply to the universe, therefore. So a cause... Um, is not necessary for a spiritual being necessarily. But second, let's think, let's think about this logically. Just think, through, think this through. If there were ever a time in history when absolutely nothing existed, nothing existed at all, not even, not even God, then logically we know nothing would still exist since nothing comes from nothing. We can logically realize that. It's backed up by the first law of thermodynamics. But we know that something does exist. The universe exists. So if you reason through there, by, by implication, something has had to exist forever. We know that something couldn't be physical or material because nothing physical lasts forever, according to the second law of thermodynamics. So something non-material, something not physical, had to exist forever without a cause. According to the Bible, That is God. So there's no conflict with science or reason, common sense on this issue. The evolutionary model, on the other hand, is in contradiction with science and reason. The fourth set of scientific laws are the laws of probability. Some scientists will argue that anything will happen if you just give it enough time, as long as it doesn't have a probability of zero. They claim that since evolution supposedly doesn't have a probability of zero, if you just throw a lot of time at it, give it enough time to do its work, then it's going to happen. Evolutionists have long cited the principles of probability, trying to find grounds for these kind of claims. As far back as 1954, Nobel laureate George Wald of Harvard, writing in Scientific American concerning the origin of life, he said, however improbable we regard this event or any of the steps it involves, given enough time, it will almost certainly happen at least once. And for life as we know it, once may be enough. 
Time is the hero of the plot. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible. The possible becomes probable, and the probable becomes virtually certain. One has only to wait. Time itself performs miracles. So, according to this idea, supposedly objects will just pop into existence. And eventually, those things will grow the necessary components. They'll come to life. They'll start strolling around. And with a little magic and sleight of hand, just poof. Eventually, they'll become humans. As long as those things don't have a probability of zero and as long as you throw enough time at it. Well, guess what? There's at least four problems with this a statement like this about the laws of probability. For the sake of time, we're going to look at one of those problems. And I cover the, most of this material much more in depth in a book that we're actually releasing in about a month or so. There is a possibility, a very minute probability, that an ape, if you lock him in a room with a laptop, that he can potentially perfectly recreate the entire Encyclopedia Britannica by just randomly banging on keys. Do you know you can actually put a number on that possibility? Does that make it an event that would ever happen? And yet evolution is still counter with, well, it could happen, and so evolution could happen too. Well, no, not really, not, not really at all. So in this example... A probability, small though it may be, could actually be calculated for that event happening because there is an input device. There's a keyboard in existence, and therefore there's a chance that the animal could randomly punch the right key at the right moment. But the evolutionary model really isn't a direct parallel to that scenario. Why? Because the evolutionary model would be more like the monkey being in a room with a computer and there being no keyboard or input device for this computer. There's no scientific evidence that supports the idea that something physical could exist forever or that something could come from nothing. We've already looked at that. One of which would be necessary in order for evolution to be valid. So there's no keyboard to even start the process of typing the encyclopedia. There's no scientific evidence that life could come from non-life. There's no scientific evidence that kinds can give rise to other kinds of life, the idea of macroevolution. There's no scientific evidence that scientific laws could write themselves into existence. And there's dozens of other examples that could be given. So in other words, for the evolutionary model, there is a no-existing, a non-existent keyboard for the monkeys to even punch. You know, really, it's worse than that. There's not even a computer. And in fact, there's not even a monkey to do the punching. There's nothing. The room's empty. The atheistic evolutionary model, which rejects God, starts with nothing in the room and then claims that the works of Shakespeare could just come into existence. How can a probability be calculated on nothing? So we're not really even talking about probability here. Evolution's not a matter of probability. It's a matter of impossibility. It's not just improbable. It's impossible. How could evolution start with nothing as well as no means of getting anything and end up with everything. You know, it's not like there's just a little bit of evidence that would back up the idea that that kind of a thing could occur. That would at least get you going, moving in a certain direction with some evidence. That's not what the atheist has. Instead of any supporting evidence for these ideas, the evolutionist starts with loads of evidence to the contrary, sending them in the other direction. Not only is there no evidence that could be used to support the idea that life could come from non-life, but there's actually abundant evidence to the contrary. And since there is, a zero, there is zero evidence that such a thing could occur, then according to the evidence, there is a zero probability 
of it actually occurring. This leads us to Komogorov's first axiom. According to this probabilistic rule, when the probability of an event is zero, the event is defined as an impossible event. All probabilities do is try to find trends that have been observed to occur in the past by observing the natural order, by observing the universe. So if there's an event that has never been shown to be able to occur in nature, like the spontaneous generation of matter or the spontaneous generation of life, then the event stands as having a zero probability. You can't just wave your hands and just give a probability to something that science has repeatedly proven to be impossible. It's not like the spontaneous generation of life has been shown to be able to occur one time in three million tries. That would at least give it a probability. But that's not what science has shown. There is no evidence to support a probability of anything other than zero for several evolutionary events, including the origin of the laws of science, the origin of matter, the origin of life, interkind evolution. And since several events that are necessary in order for the theory of evolution and the Big Bang Theory to be true, they indeed have a probability of zero, then according to the laws of probability, these atheistic theories are impossible. The fifth law of science is the well-known, highly respected law of biogenesis. This is a law which describes how life works, where, where life comes from in nature. In order for atheistic evolution to be possible, the atheist has to have an explanation for the origin of life, and he can't rely on a creator. So ultimately, in the evolutionary model, life had to come into existence from non-living substances. But all of the scientific evidence indicates that in nature, that doesn't happen. Life comes only from life of its kind in nature, period. Francesco Redi, Lazzaro Spallanzani, Louis Pasteur, the, the work of these scientists proved that conclusively centuries ago. It's even touted as such in all of the biology textbooks that I've ever seen. Life comes from life. There are no known exceptions. Thus, biogenesis is a law. And the implication is that abiogenesis, the idea that, that life can spring into existence from non-life, that is an impossibility. So belief in abiogenesis is a stubborn refusal to accept the scientific evidence, choosing instead to believe in evolutionary superstition, myths, and fairy tales, the very things that the creationist is accused of. The McGraw-Hill Dictionary of Scientific and Technical Terms, very far from being creationist-friendly, it actually defines abiogenesis as the obsolete concept that plant and animal life arise from non-living organic matter. It's an obsolete idea. Life does not do that. It doesn't come from non-life, even though many once believed that it did. Today's high school and biology textbooks often spend pages showing the work of Pasteur, proving that abiogenesis doesn't occur. And then literally on the next page, the same textbooks will proceed to promote atheistic evolution, which requires that life came from non-life. They don't have a clue how that could happen. All the scientific evidence says that it can't, but they promote it anyway. Why? Because of the very first slide I showed you. They have defined God off the table in spite of the fact that the scientific evidence points to God. Robert Hazen, evolutionary geologist of Harvard, in 2005 in a lecture series titled Origins of Life, he said, The origin of life is a subject of immense complexity, and I have to tell you right up front, we don't know how life began. How can I tell you about the origin of life when we're so woefully ignorant of that history? Evolutionist Paul Davies, I've quoted from him already before today, writing in New Scientist in 2006, he said, one of the great outstanding scientific mysteries is the origin of life. How did it happen? The truth is, nobody has a clue. 
In the 2008 documentary, Expelled, famous evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, probably one of the top five most well-known evolutionists, he discussed the origin of life with Ben Stein. And Dawkins said, nobody knows how it got started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that must have happened for the origin of life. It was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Stein responds, right. And how did that happen? Dawkins responds, I've told you. We don't know. Stein says, you have no idea how it started. Dawkins says, no nor has anybody. Well, you know, he's wrong about that. The creationist knows exactly how it started, and guess what? It's in keeping with science. It's Dawkins and his evolutionary colleagues that don't have an answer to that question. The naturalists that have defined God out of, out of science. Evolutionists have tried time and again to create laboratory conditions that would allow for this abiogenesis to happen. The idea is, hey, if we can create an environment where that'll happen, then, then we can just say maybe that's how Earth used to be back then, and that's how life could have started. But guess what? Even if you try to do that, all of their attempts have failed to be able to create life. So in light of the extensive amount of scientific evidence against abiogenesis, how can the theory of evolution be given any attention, any credence? What do the evolutionists say in response to the law of biogenesis? How do they respond to the evidence? Amazingly, one typical response is for them to just come out and admit it. Come out and concede life cannot come from non-life. They'll just admit it's impossible. It can't happen. Evolutionist and Nobel Prize winner George Wald of Harvard, who I quoted earlier, he said, one has only to contemplate the magnitude of this task to concede that the spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. Yet here we are as a result, I believe, of spontaneous generation. Now, who has the blind faith here? It's impossible. Life can't come from non-life. But I am not going to believe in God because I'm a hillbilly if I do that. Uh, So abiogenesis must have happened. No scientific evidence, but I'm just going to believe it anyway. And I'll get a a Nobel Prize for for my work in science later. Evolutionist J.D. Bernal, one of the leading scientists among X-ray crystallographers, he said, It is possible to demonstrate effectively how life could not have arisen. The improbabilities are too great and the chances of the emergence of life too small. Regrettably, from this point of view, life is here on earth and the arguments have to be bent around to support its existence. You catch that? You don't have a problem doing this if you make this assumption that God's off the table. You can be this irrational then. You can have a blind faith. Literal blind faith. That's not what creationists have. Now, there are some people that are creationists that probably do have a blind faith. The idea that they believe in something without any evidence, that's irrational, that's ridiculous. A Christian is not supposed to have that. According to the Bible, you can know the truth, and it's what's going to set you free. You must test all things, hold fast that which is good. That is not a blind faith. Our faith in God is based on the evidence, evidence like what we're looking at here, that points to God. But guess what? The evolutionists have a literal Blind faith, total acceptance of something without any evidence to support that claim. We'll just, we'll just bend the arguments and to make evolution possible. That sounds scientific to you? Does that sound unprejudiced and unbiased the way scientists are supposed to be? So let's get this straight. According to evolutionists, the origin of life through spontaneous generation, fundamental plank of evolutionary theory, if you're a naturalist, that's impossible. Nobody has a clue how life could have started since to all intents and purposes, it's impossible. So other than subscribing to the idea that maybe aliens created life, which, believe it or not, there are some people that are trying to say that, what can you say? Well, a miracle? 
It is ironic that many evolutionists have actually started using religious terminology like that to describe the origin of life. Now, they use the terminology incorrectly. They use it in the denominational sense. And they use that in spite of their simultaneous attacks on Christians and creationists that have long used that kind of terminology. Recall the renowned evolutionary astronomer Robert Jastrow, very famous fellow. He said, at present, science has no satisfactory answer to the question of the origin of life on the earth. Perhaps the appearance of life on the earth is a miracle. Scientists are reluctant to accept this view, but their choices are limited. Abiogenesis is also an act of faith. The act of faith consists in assuming that the scientific view of the origin of of life is correct without having concrete evidence to support that belief. (laughs) Okay? Just come out and admit it. Total blind faith. Now, he uses, of course, the word faith here, again, in the denominational sense, the idea of a blind faith. That's not what we have. Can we directly observe God? Can we taste, touch, hear, smell, see? No, we can't. Does that mean that we don't have any evidence for God? No, it doesn't mean that. We have indirect evidence. In the same way that they try to use indirect evidence to prove many things about the evolutionary mindset, um, the evolutionary theory, what do forensic scientists do? Forensic scientists come in after something's happened and they look at the evidence, the indirect evidence, and they arrive at a conclusion about what's happened. And that's exactly what we as creationists do. So we look at the indirect evidence. We don't have a blind faith, therefore we have evidence for what we believe. But according to Robert Jastrow, very famous uh, cosmologist, he said, hey, this evolution idea really is a blind faith. They're actually beginning to equate evolution with religion, which it is. Evolutionist and Nobel Prize winner Sir Francis Crick, he co-discovered the DNA molecule structure. He acknowledged an honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it along. Now, of course, what really uh, Dawkins and Davies and these others, when they say things like, well, it's a miracle, we don't have a clue how life got here, nobody does, what they really mean is no naturalist, no atheistic evolutionist has a clue. Biblical supernaturalists, on the other hand, know exactly how life originated, and that belief is perfectly in keeping with the law of biogenesis. If if, If in nature... Life comes only from life of its kind. Then there must have been something outside of nature to start the process. That's the only option that is in keeping with the scientific evidence. And the biblical model says, of course, that that's exactly what happened. How did living beings come to be? By the word of the Lord. God created life. He created living creatures. Life didn't spring into existence from nothing. The creation model does not contradict the evidence with regard to the origin of of life. Bottom line, the creation model is the scientific choice. The evolutionary model is unscientific. Now, another implication of this law of biogenesis comes from the work of Rudolf Virchow. From his work, we know that uh, not only does life come from life, but life comes only from life of its kind. McGraw-Hill Dictionary of Scientific and Technical Terms confirms that and defines biogenesis as the development of a living organism from a similar living organism. The laws of genetics, which I'll discuss very briefly in a moment, clarify that concept more. But the basic idea is that robins have robins. And there may be minor differences in color and beak sizes and so forth, what we call microevolution, which we don't have a problem with. 
but the offspring is still a robin. So in nature, life comes only from life of its own kind. Dogs don't give birth to cats, and horses don't have cows, frogs don't have snakes, apes don't give rise to humans. But if evolution is true, then that, in essence, is exactly what happened. Simple lower life sprang into existence, and from that, over eons of time, complex life came about. So according to evolution, life does not come from life of its kind, but rather from other kinds of life, in contradiction to the evidence, in contradiction to the law of biogenesis. In the field of philosophy, there's a law known as the law of excluded middle. And that law says that every precisely stated proposition is either true or false. So as long as you precisely and clearly define what a human is, then everything either is or isn't a human. According to the law of biogenesis, a non-human will not give rise to a human. But evolutionary theory contradicts the findings of science and requires that very thing to, in fact, occur. Which brings us to our last set of laws that we'll look at very briefly tonight. And that is the laws or principles of genetics. You know, evolutionary theory has actually been around for millennia. It really, about 150 years ago, Charles Darwin came in and, and gave it a slightly different twist, which caused it to take off. Is really the right time for it to come to, uh, to take off, and it gave a lot of people a respectable reason for accepting the naturalistic approach. But in time, people started figuring out, hey, you know, his evolution doesn't work exactly the way uh, that, it, that we hoped that it would. Natural selection cannot give rise to new species. And uh, so they needed a new version of evolution in order to stay in keeping, uh, in order to keep evolution a possibility. Neo-Darwinism is the idea that if you couple natural selection with genetic mutations, so DNA accidents, then that will give you the mechanism for evolution to happen. But that, prob- that claim has problems as well because genetic mutations don't create new raw material, which is necessary for the kind of change needed for evolution. Famous evolutionary paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard, he said concerning mutations, a mutation doesn't produce major new raw material. You don't make a new species by mutating the species. That's a common idea people have that evolution is due to random mutations. A mutation is not the cause of evolutionary change. Now, when he says that, a mutation doesn't produce major new raw material. That's an important admission to remember. What that means is if a living entity doesn't already have the genetic code to grow a certain part, then it's not going to be able to grow them because that would be new raw material, new information. Mutations don't fix the problem for the evolutionist. If you were to copy a file on a computer, mutations will sometimes happen. Duplications, deletions, you might have an extra page of, of information that's, that's duplicated. Uh, codon errors, duplications, translocations, deletions, these are actually types of, mu- of mutations in genetics. But mutations don't add new raw material. They simply change something that already exists. They alter what is already there. They might cause a fly to have an extra wing or fish to have extra eyes or a person to have an extra toe. But mutations can't create a new kind of creature. A mutation wouldn't cause a wing to appear on a creature unless the creature already had the genetic code to be able to grow that. In other words, using the book idea, no new paragraphs or chapters can be written into the genetic code through a mutation. 
You might have a, the same page duplicated or inverted or deleted, but you're not going to have an entire new chapter written in this book or a sequel. And yet evolution requires entire chapters and sequels to this book to have been written. So, but if you guess what? That can't happen. If you, a mutation does not provide new raw material or new information. It doesn't add new information to the genome. So if you don't have antlers in your genes, sorry, you're not going to be able to grow those. And if you don't have webbed duck feet in your feet, in your genes, then you're not going to be able to grow those. And if you don't have tank tracks, tank, tank treads in your genes, then sadly you're never going to be able to stroll on over to your neighbor's house and carry out a tank assault. It doesn't matter how long you live and mutate, that's just not going to happen. That's why Lynn Margulis and Dorian Sagan said, mutation accumulation does not lead to new species or even to new organs or new tissues. More and more evolutionists are starting to come out and admit this. Neo-Darwinism has been extremely popular for several decades now. And now they're starting to realize, hey, you know, we've got to have a lot of opportunity to experiment with this and it's not working. So they're back now off to, to not having any kind of mechanism for evolution to even occur. Doesn't even have a mechanism to bring you from a simple organism to something more complex. But once again, the creation model doesn't have a problem with this evidence. The evidence indicates that reproduction among living creatures takes place according to its kind, in keeping with Genesis 1:11, 120, and 124. The evidence from science supports the creation model not evolution and atheism. You know, the laws of science were written by God. So, of course, you would expect them to be in keeping with the creation model, unlike the evolutionary model, which is riddled with unresolvable issues. Bottom line, if evolution is true, science should support it. And if creation is true, then science should support it. Would science lie? Does it have its own mind? Is it trying to deceive? No, it's going to support whichever model is true. The truth is, science supports the creation model. It does not support the naturalistic evolutionary model. But notice that the creationists don't have to jump through hoops to stay in line with the, with the latest science. The creationist platform is in perfect harmony with the laws of science. It always has been. We're comfortable. And that should describe anyone who's holding to the truth. If it is the truth. But notice, evolutionists have to constantly adapt and come up with new theories to try to postpone the inevitable. If you stay up at all with the scientific literature, you're going to see that very clearly. It's constantly having to be adapted to stay in line with the latest evidence that's coming out. These theories that they come up with, they have no basis in actual fact, as we've seen tonight. They're just frantic attempts to prop up a failed theory and give the illusion to the public that they have scientific substance. And one day will be proven and verified. But notice carefully... Every time a new revised theory comes out, it's shown to be false. The laws of science are still standing there like a lighthouse to those that are unbiased and interested enough in finding the truth. There is a lawmaker that governs the earth. If you're not a member of the church, we encourage you to become one in simple faith, turning from your sins and repentance, confessing Christ with your mouth, Romans 10, 9, and 10, being immersed in water for the remission of your sins, being added to the one church of the Bible where you must remain faithful to the end to be in order to receive the crown of life. One of the questions that, that we're sometimes asked, I think this is probably more recent, it probably used to be the case where if you could prove to someone God exists, then they'll immediately know it must be the God of the Bible, especially in this country that was the case, but it's becoming more and more where that is not the case. In fact, I was recently in Russellville, Arkansas, and a couple uh, biology professors there from the local university showed up and 
and came to spar with me a little bit after, and, and, and one of the biology professors brought up this question. Well, you know, you're trying to prove the existence of God, but that doesn't prove that it's the God of the Bible. How do you know that? How do you know it's the God of the Bible and not just witchcraft or Allah or whatever? And luckily, I had my display set up there, and I was able to say, hey, actually, we've got a book back here that you need to read. And uh, how do we know that it's the God of the Bible? Well, that, that question could be answered in different ways, and, and we're not going to get into that in depth tonight. But one thing you can know is the Bible has characteristics which prove itself to be above human capability. Therefore, we have physical, tangible evidence of which God it is that exists. And that is the God of the Bible, the one that you must submit your life to, become a Christian in order to be pleasing and go to eternity and be with him in heaven forever. Thank you for your attention. If you have a need tonight, come forward now as we stand and sing.